بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله this is lesson 85 in the Radiant Light, studying the life of the Prophet And for the past dozen or so classes, we've been talking all about battles. And sometimes people who encounter the seerah wonder, is it all about battles? And the answer is no, of course. It's not all about battles. But we see in the early seerah collections, they weren't called books of seerah. They were called books of maghazi. Because those are the major pivotal moments in the history of Islam. And of course, in between those battles, all sorts of things are happening. We have the revelation of Qur'an occurring. We have incidents in the household of the Prophet we have incidents among the Sahaba in Medina, outside of Medina, and all sorts of details. So, other things are going on here. And we're going to talk about some of those today before we get to the next battle. So, what's going on now? We are at the place of the, in the Sira where Banu Nadir was expelled from Medina. And this is called the Ghazwa of Banu Nadir because there was some minimal fighting. And it was there at Banu Nadir that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed some verses of the Qur'an prohibiting alcohol. And these verses revealed at Banu Nadir were one of three sets of verses concerning alcohol. So we want to look at those three phases through which alcohol was eventually prohibited and get an understanding of what was going on at the time. Now we have to go back in history a little bit and understand that as a people, the Arabs were drinkers. Drinking culture was there among the Arabs. It was a social norm like it is in so many societies today where we're not Muslim, where drinking is a norm, it's a part of the culture. In fact, in some of the Sira works, they even say that at that time, prior to Islam and in the early days of Islam even, drinking was such a common thing that among many of the Arabs of the time, alcohol was virtually their only beverage. Think about this. And this is consistent with the history of alcohol use in Europe and other regions where they would ferment certain fruits and things with water and they would make alcohol of various strengths and it would be a beverage that they would drink just like you would drink water. So it's, think of it like Arab juice, right? Arab juice. What was the juice of the Arabs? It was nabith. And there's different de degrees of nabith, right? Some are actually permissible and others are debated among the Hanafis. And then others are clearly prohibited. So many of the Arabs would take dates and grapes and combine them in water and let them ferment. And that would be their beverage. Now it's possible for you to still do that and allow it to not ferment into an alcohol, but add flavor to the water to make it more palatable. Why do people like drinking juice and flavored drinks more than water? Because it just makes it easier to drink, right? Unless you're used to drinking nothing but water. If you've gone your life like so many of us here, where you grow up drinking juices and milk and sodas, the idea of drinking water isn't so appealing. So. It was common back then for them to put dates and grapes and, uh, into water and ferment it. 
and to a degree that is permissible as long as you put it in for just overnight where it hasn't become fermented. You could drink that. If it gets fermented, uh, this is where it gets a little murky. You know, the Hanafis have this position. Uh, the Mu'tamad in the Hanafi school is that it's prohibited. But there is a view in the school that allows it as long as a person doesn't drink to the point of intoxication. So that view exists. But it's not something you should just go out and spread to the masses. Um, but this is not just drinking flavored water. This is drinking alcohol, khamr, to the point of drunkenness. And that was a social norm. And because of it, it its uh, normality in Arab society at the time, there were even Sahaba who were drinkers before it was prohibited. And there are even some who continue to struggle with alcohol after the prohibition. But because of its uh, prevalence in Arab society, uh, because it was so common, the scholars say that if it was prohibited uh, in one go, after all of that, it would have been very difficult for many people to give it up. Because once you have this habit of drinking, social drinking and otherwise, uh, it's not so easy to give it up. So it comes in stages. And we see those stages in the Qur'an. So you find in many of the books of Sirah, when they talk about this, uh, they look at the three stages and the effects that had on society. Now the first stage is in Surah Al-Baqarah, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the Muslims asking the Prophet sallallahu about alcohol and about gambling as well. Allah Ta'ala says, Yes, Alunaka anin khamri wa maisir, kulfihi ma ithmun kabir, wa manafi ulin nas, wa ithmuhuma akbarumin nafihima. They ask you about gambling and drinking. Tell them it has much harm and some good, and the harm far outweighs the good. So you see in this verse, there's no prohibition, there's no nahi saying, don't drink. It is describing the effects of alcohol, telling the community that although there may be some benefit, the harms far outweigh the benefits. So this wasn't a prohibition, but it's an indication that the Muslims should avoid drinking alcohol. This verse was revealed uh, right around the time of Badr. So this is quite early on. And... This was as a result of some of the Sahaba asking the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So they say, uh, it has not been made haram for us, but it ha it, in it there is detriment, there is harm. And after this verse were, was revealed, many of the Sahaba gave up drinking altogether, even before it was made haram. This verse was enough. The benefits are minimal, the harms are greater, we're going to give it up. But because there was no clear prohibition, some of the Sahaba continued to drink. And that goes back to the levels of Iman as well. Because the Sahaba, like everyone else, although they are the best of humanity after the Prophets, they, they have different levels of Iman. So many of them left it, some of them still drank. That's phase one, and that happened around the time of Badr. Phase two is connected to a particular event, actually a few events, but one in particular that was the sabab of the revelation, sabab al-nuzul, the cause for the revelation of a particular verse. And the story is that there was a man from the Ansar who invited some others to, to some social drinking. And it's funny when you imagine that, because you think of the Sahab in a certain way, you're thinking about them after all of this. But go back in early history, when alcohol was not yet haram, one of the Ansar invites another group to have some social drinking. So they're hanging around and drinking and talking, and they're getting inebriated, which is a nice word for getting drunk. They got drunk. And as they were in this drunken state, the time of Maghrib arrived. And it was time to pray. So they stand up to pray, and the one to lead the salat was drunk. And he was so drunk that 
he mixed up his recitation of the Quran. He was reciting a verse that says, Ya ayyuhalladina amanu, O you who believe. But he mixed it up and said, Ya ayyuhalladina kafaru, O you who disbelieve. And when this happened, shortly thereafter, Allah Ta'ala revealed a verse of the Quran marking the second stage. This happened shortly after the Battle of Uhud in the third year of the Hijrah. And that verse is in Surah An-Nisa where Allah Ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, O you who believe, la taqarabu salata wa antum sukara. Do not approach salat, don't come to the prayer when you are drunk. But it's not a prohibition of drinking. It's just telling them, you cannot come to salat if you are drunk. Now think about that. If the verse is prohibiting coming to salat when drunk, but not prohibiting drinking, what does that mean for those who are still drinking as a social habit? It means they have to organize their drinking around the times of prayer. So maybe you can drink after fajr, then maybe you would be sober by dhuhr. Maybe not. You can't really drink in the late morning because dhuhr is coming and after dhuhr you can't really get drunk because you'll still be inebriated by the time asr comes around especially there in arabia where the times are relatively stable unlike places like here in the far north you can't really drink after asr because maghrib is coming up you can't drink alcohol after maghrib because isha is coming up so where does that leave you it leaves you really one or two times a drink, mostly after Isha. So this severely uh, compresses the possible time where those who are still drinking can consume alcohol. So because of this, many of them just gave it up because it's never going to fit into their schedule, which is organized around the times of prayer. So they, they give it up. But there are still some drinking. The drinking continues among some. Then you come to phase three. And phase three occurred in the fourth year after the Hijrah. And the verse was revealed to the Prophet ﷺ at Banu Nadir. And this is in Surah Al-Ma'idah, verse 90, where Allah Ta'ala also addresses the believers. Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, innama al-khamru wal-maysiru wal-ansabu wal-azlamu rijazun min amal al-shaytan fajtanibuhu la'allakum tuflihun. O you who believe, Intoxicants, gambling, idols, and aslam, you know, drawing lots for decisions, are all rijis. They're all impure, evil, from the handiwork of shaitan. So shun them entirely so you may be successful. This verse was a clear tahrim, a clear prohibition of alcohol. The first was a discouragement. The second verse was a prohibition of coming to prayer while drunk. This third verse was the final verse in the stages of uh, the prohibition of alcohol where it's a completely haram practice to drink alcohol. And we have so many narrations, as we mentioned, uh, about the uh, Sahaba who were drinking, who would get drunk and different incidents that would happen when they were you know, acting out of drunkenness. When this verse was revealed, uh, the Prophet Sallallahu if you go back actually, the, when the Prophet Sallallahu received the verse uh, saying, do not approach the prayer while you're drunk, he recited this verse to the community in the masjid, instructing them that they cannot come to the prayer if they're in a drunken state. And after he recited this verse of the Qur'an, the Prophet ﷺ says in the hadith recorded by Hakim, O people of Medina, Allah is alluding to the prohibition of alcohol. What does that mean? I mean, this is an ishara, this is an indication that it may soon be prohibited. So even there he's preparing them for this as a possible prohibition coming on the horizon. He says, I know not, but that perhaps a ruling will be revealed concerning it. 
It hasn't been revealed, but he feels that there may be a verse that comes and prohibits it. So he's warning them. When that verse was revealed at Banu Nadir, he communicated that verse. He gathered the community and he said, O people of Medina, Allah has revealed to me the prohibition of alcohol. So whoever hears of this verse and has any wine, let him not drink it or sell it. And that is when alcohol was completely prohibited. And the hadith of Hakim mentions that when that was communicated and it spread among the community, everyone who had containers, jars of wine, began to dump them in the streets of, in the streets of Medina to the point that the streets were flowing with wine. Because they had that certainty. And they were also prepared for this in stages over a couple of years. So that happened uh, right at the place of Banu Nadir where that verse was revealed, finally prohibiting it. So that happened. Uh, other things that are happening in this time period, we have in the month of Sha'ban, in the fourth year after the Hijrah, we have the birth of Sayyidina Hussein ibn Ali radiallahu anhu. He is the younger brother of Hassan who was born in the third year after the Hijrah, and according to most. We didn't actually talk about his birth, but because we're here in the fourth year where we have the birth of Imam Hussein, we should talk about the both of them. And this is what we call min ajaib al-muwafaqat. It's the beautiful serendipity because we are in the month of Muharram and we were talking about the Ahlul Bayt and the Khutbah and Imam Hussein in particular. So the, the timing, this wasn't planned. You know, it just happens. Alhamdulillah. So let's talk about Imam Hassan and Hussein a little bit because they are pivotal to the seerah. When Hassan radiallahu anhu was born, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said to Ali, show me my son. And then he asked Imam Ali, what did you name him? And Ali radiallahu anhu said, I named him Harb. Harb means war. That was a habit among the Arabs. They would name their children uh, names that inspired fear and courage. Uh, the Arabs have a very curious way of naming their children. Uh, in some of the uh, early seerah works, they talk about this and how uh, they will be asked, why do you name your servant, your servants, uh, these, you know, the children of your servants, these beautiful names, and you name your sons names like Harb or Kilab? And they said, you know, the Arabs would say, it's, well, the servants are ours, and we name the children Harb or Kilab or these names inspiring uh, fear for our enemies. So they hear, my son's name is War. My son's name is Kilab. It inspires something, uh, some fear into the hearts of others. But the Prophet wasallam said to, the, to Imam Ali, no, he's not Harb. Rather, he is Hassan. And Hassan comes from Husn, which means goodness and beauty. So you can say that the name Hassan means the good or the handsome one. That's what it means. Now, Imam Abu Dawood records a hadith that the Prophet ﷺ recited the adhan in the right ear of Hassan and did his aqiqah. And he did the same for Imam Hussein. This means that he is involved in the, the birthrights of his two grandsons in the process of calling the adhan in the right ear, in the shaving of the head, in the tahnik, giving the date. So he's taking the date and he's chewing it, softening it up, mixing it with his blessed saliva and placing it in the mouth of baby Hassan as well as baby Hussein radiallahu anhuma. So let's look at just some narrations about not just Hassan and not just Hussein, but the both of them and then some of the individual ones. There, when you go into the hadith collections, uh, whether you're talking about Bukhari or Muslim or Abu Dawood or Ibn Majah or Al-Nasai or Al-Tirmidhi or Al-Hakim or Ibn Hibban or Daraqutni or every single hadith collection, Tabarani, 
they are absolutely crammed, filled with narrations about the manaqib and fada'il of not just Sayyidina Hassan and Hussein, but also Sayyidina Ali and Sayyidina Fatima and others of the Ahlul Bayt as well. So many virtues are narrated. In Sahih Muslim, for instance, we have the narration from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam where he says, Allahumma inni uhibbuhu fa'ahibbahu wa ahbib man yuhibbuhu. He says about Hassan, O oh Allah, verily I love him, so love him and love those who love him. So this is a praise. So Allah, he's making a dua, asking Allah to extend his love and divine care and to love those who have that love for him. In Ibn Majah, we have the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that we mentioned uh, on Jumu'ah, where the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam says, Al-Hasanu wal-Husayn sayyida shababi ahlil jannah wa abuhuma khayrun minhuma. This is a ziyada, not found in all of the narrations. Uh, many of the narrations of this hadith mention Hassan and Hussein are the leaders of the youth of paradise. In this edition, found in Ibn Majah, it adds, وَأَبُوهُمَا خَيْرٌ minhuma," And their father is better than the both of them. So this is establishing this hierarchy of, of fadl, right? So they are great, illustrious people. And even greater than them is their father, Sayyidina Ali, radiallahu anhu wa karramallahu wajha. We have a hadith from Al-Imam Al-Tirmidhi. Uh, this hadith is called Hassan al-Gharib. So it's, it's actually on the a weaker side. But there are corroborating narrations for this. And the meaning is true. Uh, where it is said that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, مَنْ أَحَبَّنِي وَأَحَبَّ هَذَيْنِ وَأَبَاهُمَا وَأُمَّهُمَا كَانَ مَعِي فِي دَرَجَةِ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ He says, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, according to this narration, Whoever loves me and loves these two, Hassan and Hussein, and loves their father and loves their mother, will be with me on, the, on my level, meaning where I am at, on the Day of Judgment. So that hadith, Imam Tirmidhi says, Hassan al-Gharib. So it's a kind of weak hadith. Not severely weak, not fabricated by any means, uh, but it is corroborated by other hadith. So the, the ulama will cite this. Uh, as one of the narrations whose meaning is correct. We have another hadith recorded by Ibn Majah that is sound. مَنْ أَحَبَّ الْحَسَنَ وَالْحُسَيْنِ فَقَدْ أَحَبَّنِي وَمَنْ أَبْغَضَهُمَا فَقَدْ أَبْغَضَنِي He says, Sallallahu Alaihi Wa Wasallam, Whosoever loves Hassan and Hussein has loved me. And whosoever has hatred towards them has hatred towards me. There's so many narrations like this, not just for the two, but also for Sayyidina Ali and Sayyidina Fatima. So many narrations like this. In Bukhari, we have in his Sahih from Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhuma, he says, كان النبي صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم يعوذ الحسن والحسين ويقول إن أباكما كان إن أباكما كان يعوذ بها إسماعيل وإسحاق أعوذ بكلمات الله التامة من كل شيطان وهامة ومن كل عين لامة. This is in Bukhari, where Ibn Abbas relates that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم would make du'a asking Allah to protect young Hassan and Hussein, and he would say, indeed your father, your forefather, meaning who? Ibrahim alayhi salam, would make this dua of protection for Ismail and Ishaq, saying, I seek refuge in the perfect words of Allah from every rebellious devil and from every uh, blaming envious eye. So he would make this special du'a for them. Likewise in Bukhari, Imam Hassan radiallahu anhu, he says, 
لقد سمعت أبا بكرة يقول رأيت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم على المنبر والحسن عفوا this is not the other حسن so لقد سمعت أبا بكرة يقول رأيت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم على المنبر والحسن بن علي إلى جنبه وهو يقبل على الناس مرة وعليه أخرى ويقول إن ابني هذا سيد ولعل الله أن يصلح به بين فئتين عظيمتين من المسلمين. So Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhu says, I heard the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam on the minbar while Hassan ibn Ali was on his side. So picture this, he's on the minbar in Medina and young Hassan ibn Ali is at his side. And he was turning to the people and looking at them, and then turning to Hassan, young Hassan, back and forth. And then he said to the people, This son of mine is a Sayyid, meaning a leader. And by means of him, Allah will make peace between two great factions among the Muslims. And this is exactly what happened with Imam Hassan ibn Ali in the sulh that he made in order to safeguard the lives and honor of Muslims and their blood. Regarding Hussein, we have so many other narrations as well. We have the Prophet ﷺ also giving him his name and saying that Hassan and Hussein are the leaders of the youth in Jannah. So they're grouped together. He also says in the famous hadith, Husaynun minni wa ana min Hussein. He says, I, uh, uh, Hussein is from me and I am from Hussein. And as we said during Jumrah, when he says this, he's not stating the obvious that this is his grandson because everyone knows he's his grandson. He's not simply saying, this is my grandson. No one is in any doubt that Hassan and Hussein are from his grandchildren. So when he says, Husaynun minni wa ana min Hussein, He's talking about this very special relationship of qurb, of closeness, of affinity, of reflecting his character, of reflecting his determination, of reflecting his, his ahwal. This is a statement of praise. Uh, one hadith uh, mentions that uh, Hassan radiallahu anhu most closely resembled the Prophet وسلم, from the head to the waist. When you read the Shema'il and you read the description of the blessed head and the hair and the face, the neck, the shoulders, the arms, the wrists, the joints, the chest and the stomach, that part, Hassan ibn Ali radiallahu anhu most closely resembled his grandfather. And the hadith says that from the waist down, Hussein ibn Ali most resembled his grandfather sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Another virtue of Hassan and Hussein is that they were chosen by the Prophet ﷺ to be a part of the Mubahala. What is the Mubahala? The Mubahala in Arabic, when you do a Mubahala, is when you have two people or two groups and they both come together and invoke the curse of Allah upon whichever is lying. Right? So the verse of the Mubahala is mentioned in Surah Ali Imran regarding a group of Christian priests who came from the south to uh, speak to the Prophet and ask about different theological questions. And he gave them da'wah. And they were at a stalemate, you could say. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals in this verse, Qul ta'alaw. ندعو أبناءنا وأبناءكم ونساءنا ونساءكم وأنفسنا وأنفسكم ثم نبتهل فنجعل لعنة الله على الكاذبين. He says, سبحانه وتعالى, say, come, let us call our children and you call your children. You call your women folk and we call our women folk. You call yourselves and we call ourselves and then we engage in mubahala and we ask Allah to invoke his curse upon whichever of us is lying. When that verse was revealed, the Prophet ﷺ gathered Imam Ali 
and his wife, the daughter, Sayyida Fatima, Zahra, and their two children, Imam Hassan and Hussein. And he enveloped them in his kisa, his cloak, and had them together like this. And he says, These are the members of my household. So he was a part of the da'wah by being present as the Prophet ﷺ carried out the divine instructions in that verse. So he was in the path of da'wah even as a young child, as a part of this mubahala. Uh, and this is why so many of the scholars say, when they talk about the Ahlul Bayt, they discuss who are the Ahlul Bayt, and there's lots of different opinions. How far does it extend? How narrow is it? The soundest view, when you gather all of the narrations, is that there is a wider Ahlul Bayt, of course, but you can look at them like concentric circles. So you have the larger circle of Banu Hashim altogether. Then you have the, the children, the offspring of Abbas and Ja'far al-Tayyar. And then you have the wives of the Prophet But then at the center, in the core, you have the elite of the Ahlul Bayt. And they are the Ahlul Kisa. So they are the, they're not the only Ahlul Bayt, but they are the elect and the core of that family. And at, within that core is Imam Hassan and Imam Hussein, uh, along with their father and mother. So he was a part of that. So as we said during the Jummah Khutbah, both Imam Hassan and Hussein grew up witnessing the character, sacrifices, and da'wah of their grandfather, sallallahu alayhi wa They witnessed the piety and devotion and sacrifice of their mother, Sayyida Fatima Zahra and Imam Ali. They grew up in that household. You cannot pick a more perfect household to grow up into. If you had the choice of parents and brothers and sisters, you cannot pick a better family to grow up in. They were in that family. That is who they are. And this is what they were reared upon. You know, these are the children of one who is Sayyida Nisa al-Alameen and whose father has the most manaqib and virtues recorded in hadith, right? There's, there's so many, more than anybody else, and who was one of the greatest. So that's what they grew up in. And as we said during the Jum'ah Khutbah as well, because of this closeness within the core of the prophetic household, they have a share of what the Prophet ﷺ received in terms of trials and tribulations in upholding his mission, upholding his da'wah, and representing his way. And they suffered a lot because we know that both of them lost their grandfather at a relatively young age. Imam Hussein would have probably been around seven or eight when the Prophet ﷺ passed away. And six months after his passing, their beloved mother passed away. And then we go further into the history. Some years later, their father is assassinated. And then you have a time of turmoil and Hassan is poisoned. And then you go further and you have what happened to Imam Hussein that we will talk about. But this is what happened in the third and the fourth year after the Hijrah, exactly where we are. We have in the third year the birth of Sayyidina Hassan and in the fourth year the birth of Sayyidina Hussein radiallahu uh, anhuma. At the same time, in the month of Shawwal, because that was Sha'ban, for Sha'ban you have the birth of Imam Hussein. You have Ramadan, and then after Ramadan you have Shawwal. In the month of Shawwal, in the fourth year after the Hijrah, we have the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa marrying Umm Salama. Her Umm Salama is how we know her. She's one of the Ummahatul Mu'mineen, the mothers of the believers. Her name was Hind bint Abi Umayyah. That's her name, but we know her as Umm Salama. And we know her as Umm Salama because of her son Salama, uh, whom she birthed uh, from her previous marriage to Abu Salama. And she got married to the Prophet ﷺ after her idda was over, following the martyrdom, the shahada of Abu Salama. 
Now from Abu Salama radiallahu anhu, she had four children. She had of course Salama. She had one named Umar, another named Zainab, and another named Ruqayya. In some sources say the name was not Ruqayya, they say it was Durra. But she had four children. And so she gets married to the Prophet sallallahu But there's a story behind that. It's a very beautiful story. Now, prior to the martyrdom of Abu Salama, the Prophet taught the Ummah a very important dua. And that dua is to be said when you suffer a tragedy. If you suffer a tragedy, a loss of life or anything, he instructed the Ummah to say, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. To Allah we belong and to Him we're returning. Allahumma ajirni fi musibati wa khlufli khayran minha. Oh Allah, reward me in my affliction and give me something that is better than it that I've lost. This is a dua you can say for tragedies. This was already taught to the Ummah. And what makes the story so beautiful is that when the dua was taught, Umm Salama wasn't there. Abu Salama was. He learned the dua from the Prophet ﷺ. He goes home and he teaches the dua to his wife. She learns the dua from him and memorizes it. Some time later, he's killed in battle. And she really loved Abu Salama. She was, he was so beloved to her, and she was very jealous, a very jealous woman. She had a great deal of devotion to her husband. And she was so struck by grief that she thought to herself, you know, I should say this dua that I learned from my husband that he received from the Prophet So the hadith mentions that she remembered this dua and she began to say it. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. Allahumma ajirni fi musibati wa khlufli khayran minha. And she said that as she was saying the dua, this thought occurred to her. Who is better than Abu Salama? She believes the dua. The dua is true. But she's thinking, how is that going to be answered practically? Who is going to fill his shoes? But she says the dua, thinking in the back of her mind, who, who is really going to take his place? So she says that dua, and very shortly after she receives an offer from a couple of others for marriage, she turns them down. And then she receives an offer from none other than Sayyidina Rasulullah And this is the answer to the dua, someone who is clearly better than her husband. But she was worried. Because she says to the Prophet ﷺ before the marriage, I am a very jealous woman. And he has more than one wife. She says, Ya Rasulullah, I'm a very jealous woman. And I have many children. The Prophet ﷺ said to her, Don't worry, your jealousy will dissipate. It will be... It will be under control. And as for your children, I will care for them and look after them. And so they got married in the fourth year after the hijrah, and she became one of the Ummahatul Mu'minin. Now, out of all of the wives, the Sira narrations mentioned that she was the last of them to pass away. This is why you read about her way later in Islamic history during different times of turmoil, she, being from the Ummahat al-Mu'minin, was the last of them to die. It is said that she died in the year 59 after Hijrah. And she already had four children. So this puts her, according to most accounts, at 84 years of age when she passed away, the last of the mothers of the believers to die, radiallahu anha. So we have the prohibition of alcohol in the fourth year of the Hijrah. We have the birth of Imam Hussein in the fourth year of the Hijrah. We have in the month of Shawwal of the fourth year, the marriage to Umm Salama. But who can remind us 
when exactly the Battle of Uhud took place? Anyone remember the month? It was around Sha'aban. So we're coming up on an anniversary, aren't we? We're coming up on the one-year anniversary of Uhud. Now, does anyone remember the final parting words as Quraysh were leaving the battlefield? When the Prophet wasallam was with the Muslims at the high ground and Abu Sufyan was shouting out, Is Muhammad among you? And he's saying other things. And then he says to them to respond. They have this conversation, remember? And Abu Sufyan says, our meeting place will be next year where? At Badr. At Badr. Our meeting will take place next year at Badr. We will settle the score. So we're now coming to the one year anniversary where that's supposed to happen. So did it happen? What happened? Let's find out. We're coming on this one year anniversary. And when that time was drawing near, the Prophet ﷺ began to organize the Muslims and prepare them to go to Badr once again, to meet Abu Sufyan and the forces of Quraysh in battle. Meanwhile, back in Mecca, Abu Sufyan didn't want to go. In fact, the seerah records that he was gripped with a great deal of fear and anxiety about the prospect of going back out. He didn't want to do it. But he's the one who said our meeting, place, our meeting will be this time next year at Badr. So what is he going to do? He can't just back out of this. So he has to find some way to deal with this. The Sira tells us that as he was in Mecca, uh, gripped with fear, not wanting to go out, he told one Nu'im ibn Mas'ud, I promised Muhammad and his companions that we would meet at Badr and the time has come. Yet this year is a year of drought. And what we need is a year of plenty, a year of fertility. But I would hate for Muhammad to go forth and for us to stay back, giving him boldness towards us. So I, he's telling Nu'im bin Mas'ud, I will give 20 fully loaded camels to you that Suhail ibn Amr will look after and guarantee for you if you, Nu'im ibn Mas'ud, can go to Medina and dissuade the companions of Muhammad from going to Badr. So he's offering him a lot of money. Think about this. The diya is 100 camels. This is 20. And they're loaded with goods. That's a lot of money. He's saying, I'll leave these 20, these 20 camels with goods with Suhail ibn Amr. You go to Medina, they'll be here waiting for you. He'll look after them for you. Your only job is to go to Medina and manage to convince them not to go to Badr. So Nu'im bin Mas'ud accepts this offer and decides to go to Medina to try to dissuade the Prophet and the companions from going out. So the, the Sira narrations tell us that Nu'im bin Mas'ud rode quickly to Medina by himself. And when he got there, he found the Muslims were already preparing to go. They're already gathering their supplies, preparing their armor, sharpening their swords, and they're ready to go. So he tried to find a way to dissuade them. And the way he did it is by presenting himself as a sincere advisor. Not all advice that comes to you is sincere. That's a lesson you learn in life. Some people who come to you in the guise of a sincere well-wisher often comes to you with advice that is to your detriment, that is actually serving the needs of someone else. So you have to be intelligent and look at what their agenda might be in that sincere advice. So he wants to give them this advice. He sees them preparing and he says, and I quote, this is not of my opinion. And what he means is, I don't think this is the right thing to do. I think this is a bad idea. 
Did not Muhammad get wounded in person? Did he not get wounded at Uhud? Did not his companions get killed in battle? So he's mentioning these past experiences from the last battle prior to Banu Nadir, the battle where they suffered so many losses. Then he tells them, well, you know, Abu Sufyan is rounding up troops and there are this many and they have this many horses and this many camels and this much armor and this much uh, weaponry and they're really preparing to head out in a massive force. You know, he's, this is propaganda. He's trying to scare them using psychological warfare to make them think that the odds are in favor of Quraysh and if they go out, it may even be worse than Uhud. So as he's doing this, it plants the seeds of doubt in some of the Sahaba who were preparing. And some of them began to feel afraid for what lie ahead. But you, you can picture this. This is a conversation taking place between Nu'aim bin Mas'ud and some of these Sahaba. The Prophet ﷺ is not there. But as always, word gets back to the Prophet ﷺ. He is told what Nu'aim bin Mas'ud is saying. And then when he hears about this, he says, proclaiming very loudly in the community, By the one in whose hand is my soul, I will go out even if I go alone. Even if I go all by myself to Badr, to meet Abu Sufyan and his forces, I will go. Because that is the promise. That is the agreement that was made. So when he said that, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Allah removed those fears, those anxieties and doubts that were planted by Nu'im ibn Mas'ud. So the Sahaba that were just shortly before this feeling a bit worried, that was all removed. Their hearts were clear and they were ready to go out. And so it was in the month of Sha'ban, the Prophet ﷺ left Abdullah bin Rawaha in charge of Medina and they went out to Badr. And carrying the liwa was Sayyiduna Ali radiallahu anhu. They marched with 1500 troops and they had 10 horses. And they also brought merchandise. They brought goods to trade. Why would they do that? Aren't they going for a battle? Well, they brought merchandise because you remember that Badr, there's a series of wells there. It was a stopping point. It was also something of a trading post. So there is an opportunity, a chance, that when they get there, there will be others who have goods and money, and they will trade merchandise for other merchandise or uh, for money there's a chance they could turn a profit so they brought the merchandise along just in the chance that there may be people there and so the muslims are heading out to badr like this 1500 strong with 10 horses and with merchandise meanwhile back in mecca abu sufyan he can't just stay behind because the word gets back well they're going to badr so you have no chance to stay back. You have to go. So he has no choice but to go, to keep his word. He doesn't want to do it. So he leaves Mecca with 2,000 men and 50 horses. They outnumber the Muslims by 500. And when they reached a certain place called Majadna, he stood before this uh, Mushrik army of Quraysh, and he says, Ya Quraysh, you are all in a year of famine. This is a year of need. We are suffering a lack of resources. We are suffering famine. We need a year of abundance where we have green pasture for your animals and where we have milk to drink. This is a year of famine. This is not a good time to go. So I am deciding to go back. He, he didn't want to go in the first place, but he couldn't just say, I'm not going. He had to give them the impression that he's going out and that as he's going out and he's seeing the effects of the famine, he's 
having second thoughts and trying to appeal to their other interests and telling them, listen, this is a year of famine. What we need is a year of abundance so our animals can get bigger and they can be uh, fed and they can produce milk so we're better off. I'm going back. This is what he said. And so they all went back with him to Mecca. And the people in Mecca who didn't go, they started to make fun of Abu Sufyan and those troops because a lot of them realized that this was a ploy. They're not believing that, oh, he was sincerely headed out for battle, but then had a second thought looking at the greater interest of the community. A lot of them felt that, no, this was a ploy the whole time. And they began to make fun of Abu Sufyan and the troops that he went with, and they called them the Jaish al-Sawiq, the, the army of the Sawiq. Remember the Sawiq is the oat porridge? They were saying, all you guys did was go out there to hang out and drink this porridge drink and relax and use that as a ploy and then come back, making it seem as if you were prepared to go fight. But in reality, you never wanted to go. So they began to make fun of them. But it was a, you know, he's giving a plausible reason for going back. But he didn't want to go in the first place. And so nothing happened. There was no battle. But the Muslims arrived at Badr. We said they brought, there's 1,500 of them. And how many horses? Ten. And they also brought merchandise. Now they get to Badr. They wait there. The Prophet ﷺ sets up camp there for eight days. And in those eight days, he's just waiting for Abu Sufyan to arrive. Eventually, word gets back that they're in Mecca. They're not coming. And so at this stage, the Sira accounts mention that the Muslims decided to sell that merchandise. There were people. So they sold this merchandise and they made a very profitable exchange. Uh, one narration says that for every single dirham that they invested in merchandise, they received one dirham in return. So you sell something for $10, you get $20 back. That's a very nice profit. And so they made a lot of money selling that merchandise. And what is so interesting is that this incident is mentioned in the Qur'an and the profit as well that they made. In Surah Al-Imran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, الَّذِينَ قَالَ لَهُمُ النَّاسُ إِنَّ النَّاسَ قَدْ جَمَعُوا لَكُمْ فَخْشَوْهُمْ فَزَادَهُمْ إِيمَانًا وَقَالُوا حَسْبُنُ اللَّهُ وَنِعْمَ الْوَكِيلُ Those who were warned, your enemies have mobilized their forces against you, so fear them. Who is saying this? This is the Nu'aim ibn Mas'ud telling the Muslims that they've amassed this great force, so you must be afraid of them. And they said, uh, but they only increased them in Iman, and they said, Hasbunallahu wa ni'mal wakil. The warning only made them grow stronger in Iman, and they replied, Allah is sufficient uh, as an aid for us, and He is the best protector. Right? The next verse mentions Badr. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَانْقَلَبُوا بِنِعْمَةٍ مِّنَ اللَّهِ وَفَضْلٍ لَمْ يَمْسَسْهُمْ سُوءٍ وَاتَّبَعُوا رِضْوَانَ اللَّهِ وَاللَّهُ ذُو فَضْلٍ عَظِيمٍ He says, so they returned with Allah's favors and grace, suffering no harm. لَمْ يَمْسَسْهُمْ سُوءٍ No harm even lightly touched them. And they sought to please Allah, and surely Allah is the Lord of infinite bounty. They made money from this. They made a profit. They benefited. No harm even touched them. right? And they returned following the pleasure of Allah. And these verses were revealed in connection to the threats of Nu'im ibn Mas'ud. The Muslims' response after the Prophet said he would go all alone if he had to. And them trading at Badr and making a very nice profit. So that's in the fourth year, and we're still in the fourth year, but there's more things to happen. After this, we have another ghazwa. And that ghazwa is known as ghazwa to that riqa' or the, the battle of rags. The battle of rags. And next week we'll explain why it's called the battle of rags. And then we go through that battle. We 
go into the fifth year of the Hijrah as well. So as you see, we're, we're covering it year by year. We finished the third year. We're almost done with the fourth year, going into the fifth year. Then we proceed like this, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, to the end of the seerah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa Wallahu rasuluhu a'lamu sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the second part of your question. That's the answer. Uh, when Abdullah ibn Ubay promised the tribe of Banu Nadir that he would support them with 2,000 men and Banu Quraidha along with their allies of Banu Ghatafan, he was lying, not because he wanted them to, harm, to suffer harm, but because these were his old allies, he felt offended, but at the end of the day, he was just all talk. He wasn't actually going to put his own life at risk uh, and go out there to defend them and uh, fight for them or with them. Uh, so it wasn't that he's trying to get them into a bad predicament. It's just that he was a coward. And when push came to shove, he was too cowardly to put to action what he was promising them. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, the verse says it, right? Allah bears testimony that the munafiqun are liars. So it was a lie. Yeah. No. It's I think is very similar to this society and societies in Europe or where wherever alcohol is a social norm. You have social drinking, then you have uh, alcoholism where it's not done socially. Some people may drink themselves into a drunken stupor all by themselves at home. Uh, And then you have people in society who are around that, and for them it's a social norm, but they don't do it. They just don't drink as a rule. And then you likewise have people who have dabbled in drinking alcohol, but they've had bad experiences, so they swear it off but they may sit around people who are drinking and they don't stop them, but they themselves don't partake of it. That's what we have in this society, right? A society where drinking alcohol is normalized doesn't mean that everybody is drinking. And there's levels to drinking too in this society. You have the the person who may drink wine on a special occasion, like an anniversary or a party, a birthday party, but they only drink one cup, one glass, you have others who drink beer on, at sporting events or social occasions, but they control it. Then you have those who drink regularly and they look for any opportunity to crack a beer. Then you have those who drink even harder liquor and those who don't have it under control and who suffer from alcoholism. All of those possibilities existed in that time where drinking was a social norm. But there were a lot of people who never drank because they saw the effects of it on other people. And these are people who have a a certain nobility of soul, a certain dignified bearing where they would not want to do things, uh, drink to the point where that would happen to them. And the Prophet uh, of course, never drank alcohol. Many of the Sahaba also never drank. They were not even social drinkers. Uh, You have to remember it as a social norm for people who 
uh, at different classes of society, right? Y you have all sorts of people. And among those people are those who never even touched it, even though it was a social norm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when we talk about the Ahlul Bayt, we have to define who they are. And the ulama who discuss the family of the Prophet ﷺ, they try to look at all of the narrations as well as the verses of Qur'an that describe them to understand who are the Ahlul Bayt. And the, the summary is that you can look at them like concentric circles. So you have a big circle here, and then inside of that you have another circle, a smaller circle. Inside of that circle you have another smaller circle, smaller than it. And then you have a small, the smallest circle in the center. So the Ahlul Bayt are in many ways like concentric circles. The, the further you go out, you have according to the position that it's Banu Hashim, all of Banu Hashim are broadly Ahlul Bayt. Then you have a narrower one, which says uh, the wives and the offspring of the Prophet ﷺ. And then you have that circle in the middle, the smallest circle, which would be the elite, or the elect of the Ahlul Bayt, being the Ahlul Kisa, meaning uh, Sayyidah Fatima, Zahra, Sayyidina Ali, Sayyidina Hassan, and Sayyidina Al-Hussein. And they're all Ahlul Bayt. Another way of defining Ahlul Bayt is to say they are the ones for whom it is prohibited to accept charity. Right? Because of the hadith. By that definition, then that's, that bigger circle is removed. Because if you can receive sadaqah, then even if you're Banu Hashim, you're not Ahlul Bayt. So there's different ways of looking at it. Uh, the soundest view is that Ahlul Bayt are those who are, uh, are prohibited from accepting sadaqah, and that the center of the Ahlul Bayt will be the Ahlul Kisa. Now, the wives of the Prophet, can they accept sadaqah? They can. So they are Ahlul Bayt in the sense that they are from the household, because they, they literally live in the household. But they are not of the category that, can, that cannot receive sadaqah. So there's, there, there's circles. You know, some are Ahlul Bayt in the general sense. Some are Ahlul Bayt in a, more, in a narrower sense. And some of them are the elite of the elite of the Ahlul Bayt. So there's no real contradiction between these views. Uh, and we shouldn't, you know, some people try to pit one against the other. And they try to expand it to the point where everyone's Ahlul Bayt. Right, some people, they use the hadith, which is a hadith da'if, uh, that says that Ahlul Bayt, kullu uh, taqi. Uh, you know, every pious person is Ahlul Bayt. Okay, if you're pious, that means that sadaqah is prohibited for you. You can't accept sadaqah now because you're muttaqi. So we have to be clear on definitions, right? Uh, so generally, those who cannot receive sadaqah are Ahlul Bayt. And at the core of them, you have the Ahlul Kisa. So... We don't say that the Ahlul Bayt are only the Ahlul Kisa, the, those in the, in the center. And we don't say that the wives are not Ahlul Bayt. They are, but in a, in a different sense. Right? So in the hadith about the Fada'il Manaqib of the Ahlul Bayt uh, and the rights and the duties owed to them and the certain things by which they are distinct from other members of the Ummah, that is talking about the direct descendants of the Prophet ﷺ, that is talking about primarily the descendants of Imam Hassan and Hussein, right? For all practical purposes, we're looking at them. If a person is Hassani or Husseini or a combination thereof, they are a Sayyid, they are a Sharif, they're from the Sadat, and they don't receive Sadaqah. And, and historically, in Muslim societies, you always had the Naqib al-Ashraf, in any center where there's lots of Muslims, you'd have this person who is, he has an official position as the supervisor over the lineages of the Sadat, to verify those lineages, to ensure that the, uh, their needs are taken care of, 
through means other than sadaqah, right? But there comes a bit of controversy later on when uh, the Muslim empires crumbled and became weakened and those, those functions no longer operated properly in society. The question came, well, what if there is no center, central Muslim authority that has those needs met for them by means other than sadaqah? Can they receive zakat? You know, so scholars debated if in dire situations, could they, in the absence of those things in place? But the point I'm making is that if the person can receive sadaqah, they may have a relation to the Prophet but it will not be in the more narrower definition of Ahlul Bayt. Does that, that make sense? Yeah. It's something to explore in more detail. Uh, I'm just giving you just a synopsis of the views. There's several views. Uh, we don't take the overly uh, restrictive view in, in the sense that we deny others that status, nor do we take the overly expansive view where it, it essentially loses all meaning and significance. When everybody is Ahlul Bayt, then no one has that distinction. It's taklifun wa chashirif. It's an honor and a high responsibility. And yeah, there's a lot to be said. And inshallah, and when we finish the Fardain program, and we're hoping to finish it around October-ish, we're going to do a program, inshallah, for about five or six weeks, where we look at the status of the Sahaba and the Ahlul Bayt and look at the definitions, look at the manaqib, the, the, the virtues and merits, uh, the rights and responsibilities through a proper, uh, balanced Sunni perspective, inshallah ta'ala, that's the intention. Uh, may Allah give that tawfiq and uh, see it to fruition. I mean.